Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the Trudeau Foundation's president and the board of directors are resigning, citing the charity's entanglement in the ongoing foreign interference controversy. Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University, will talk to us about that. Prime Minister Trudeau announces new military aid for Ukraine. What challenges do we face? Not just supplying it, but getting it over there. And instead of facing Ontario's mandatory upgrades, for-profit long-term care homes have decided to sell their properties and get out of the business. What are the repercussions? Well, we'll talk about that as well. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What is going on with the... Uh, the well, the Trudeau Foundation, uh, the, which has come under such great scrutiny over the last little while, uh, and then there's so much misinformation, information, and, and speculation about what's going on. Of course, it has a lot to do with foreign interference and uh, Chinese money that uh, was was donated, we are told, uh, to the foundation. But uh, as a result of this, of course, the board of directors have resigned, and uh, there's a lot going on here. Uh, just to set the scene before we get into some of the details here, uh, Mia Rabson has this report. The Trudeau Foundation was set up in 2001 in memory of the former Prime Minister. The office of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he is not involved in its work. But last month, the foundation returned a donation for $140,000 given in 2016 by two Chinese businessmen, after learning it may have been initiated by the Chinese government. The board and CEO say in a written statement issued this morning that it is impossible for them to continue in the current political climate. Three directors will stay on temporarily until a new board and CEO can be found. Mia Rabson, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So what's going on here? If, if just you follow the opposition uh, leaders, uh, both Mr. Polyev and Mr. Blanchette, uh, who seem to have the you know this rated their crosshairs right now and said this whole thing's got to get blown up. Uh, the Prime Minister says nothing really to see here. Uh, to try to get to the bottom of this, uh, we're going to give you a couple of different perspectives on this. I'm going to start it off with our next guest. He is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish, who is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program, and especially, uh, well, given the fact that uh, you were at one point a uh, Trudeau Foundation scholar, were you not? I was so, Bill. Thanks for uh, for letting me talk to you about this today. Yes, that was way, way back in 2004. I, I had a lot more hair then. It's <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, it says here in the press release uh, that uh, this foundation, as we just heard from Mia's report there, uh, is a uh, independent, nonpartisan scholarship organization that created with the support of House of Commons back in 2001. Uh, that's not the way it's being described by the opposition parties right now. Yeah, I think there's some confusion with um, how the, the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polivar, is 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 trying to brand the the foundation. So I can I can speak very clearly to this as a product of this the scholarship program that has offered scholarships to hundreds of uh, of talented uh, scholars and and uh, free thinkers across the country uh, and even around the world uh, over the last twenty years or so. Uh, the, the foundation was very much set up to provide an investment into to free thinking youth uh, across the country in a nonpartisan format. And I do remember very specifically the the conferences and the get togethers that we would have, and you would have these these young uh, you know these young students uh, doing their their PhDs that would uh, be from all different political stripes. You, you'd have conservatives and liberals and, and uh, separatists, and you'd have NDP all all kind of going at each other. And the purpose of it was to, in my idea of it, was to try to prepare these youth 
to speak to big ideas critically and openly and in a very uh, engaged fashion. And so by bringing people together in this way, uh, they, they provided financial support for, for your studies, but also putting you into these forums where you could, you could push the boundaries. You could, you could be a free thinker and, and really, uh, challenge the, uh, the, the status quo. And, uh, as a result of it, I think that many of the, the folks that I've, I've met over the years, uh, have done well to, to fulfill that, that obligation as, you know, out products, if you will, outputs from the foundation to, to engage in, in Canadian politics and Canadian policy. Uh, just like what we do here, Bill. I mean, um, you know, we, 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 we chat all the time about uh, the problems with, uh, with, with Chinese interference in the country. And, uh, you know, I've got, uh, I've got no problem always taking the, taking the gloves off when it's needed. And I think a lot of that training that I work on today has been a, been a product of that early training that I received uh, from the foundation years ago. Has it been well funded over the years? I mean, the focus here is, as we've talked about, is is really on on one donation. Well, yeah, split in two apparently. Yeah. So, uh, but so but this is not the only money that this foundation deals with. No, 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 no. And I think the I think there was a tweet that Pierre Polivar put out that it was a Beijing funded foundation. Well, well here's here's no, his tweet. It, just to, yeah, just to put the yeah, listeners up to speed. It. Mr. Polyev tweets: We need to investigate the Beijing funded Trudeau Foundation. We need to know who got rich, who got paid, and who got privilege and power from Justin Trudeau as a result of funding the Trudeau Foundation. Now, as you and I have talked about in the past, Mr. Polyev is prone to bombast an awful lot of the time. Uh, and, and I don't know how much of this is factual. A lot of it is insinuation, of course, which is not fact-based. But uh, they're controlling the narrative right now. Yeah, and, and this is where uh, it's going to be difficult for the foundation to try to recontrol the narrative when the entire board just resigned. Uh, but what the idea is, is, is that this foundation is set up like a Rhodes Scholarship or a Fulbright. We probably heard of those names uh, elsewhere. Sure. Uh, in the memory of, of Pierre Trudeau, so Trudeau the Elder, and really uh, at its inception, it wasn't about uh, Pierre Trudeau's time in politics. It was all the the intellectual work they did afterwards. That was really the the memory of it. They didn't want to create statues to 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 Pierre Trudeau around Ottawa. They figured let's take the money and invest it into to Canadian youth to to encourage free thinking. And what uh, what the problem is, I think, with with Mr. Polivar's uh, rendition of this is that most of the money actually comes from the Canadian taxpayers, right? This is a, an endowment from Ottawa that comes in to fund the scholarships, to fund the program operations over the years. And uh, additional charitable donations uh, are sort of the the side piece to it. So the, the money in question that that's coming up here is about $140,000 that uh, looks to be a, a donation from individuals who were tied to the government of China, to the foundation in 2016. Now, uh, that is something that the, uh, you know, reading the papers here that the, the foundation said they've tried to repay back, uh, as a result of it. But it's, it's really a drop in the bucket in terms of what that, uh, uh, that overall budget is still. That doesn't excuse the fact that that is probably a deal that shouldn't have happened. So you know, I want to be very clear on this, that the, the, the value of this foundation is one that is, it does a great job of investing in, in, in free thinking and, 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 and this sort of work across the country. Um, and I really hope that when Mr. Polivar is trying to be critical about, uh, seeking out where, what, uh, angles Chinese foreign interference is playing in, they doesn't do it so ham-fisted 
to to try to burn down the whole uh, the whole purpose of this project. I mean, he, he's he's piped off in similar ways about uh, wanting to completely dismember the CBC. I mean, it's something that that's a well, bit hamstrung for what the job is, you know. And the Bank of Canada too. So I mean, it, right? It, this is, I get that, uh, but I, I guess the question a lot of us are going to be asking here then is: is how could this have happened then? I mean, one of the yeah. people that resigned, of course, was the president and CEO, uh, Pascal Fournier, who is a, an internationally respected jurist and lawyer and, and, and educator, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with impeccable credentials. And, and, uh, I mean, I, the, 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 how did this happen on her watch? And there's other respected people on this board too. Uh, did they yeah. just turn the other way? Were they not aware of what was going on? I mean, there's some questions that need to be answered here. Absolutely. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. Uh, it sounds like even this morning, the press in Montreal reported that there's, there is problems with the check repayment, uh, with the foundation giving the donation back. Now that's the sort of, that's a sort of curiosity that that's worth pursuing. I mean, what, what, what was managed here? Uh, improperly, what created a conflict of interest that could have hurt the value of, of, of this foundation. And, and that's where the inquiry, I think, needs to, needs to begin. The other tricky association here, Bill, is that in 2016, it was Morris Rosenberg, who was the president of the Trudeau Foundation, who would have overseen this donation. And as you know, later on in 2019, he went on to, uh, to write a report about Chinese interference in Canada. When I heard that originally, I thought that is, that's, pretty close i mean that's uh mm-hmm. that that seems like it's uh, uh almost uh too inside the the the, the, the like it, it's just too close for that individual to be uh to be tasked with that job so these are the sort of questions that i think need to come up and you know as someone who's uh just like the rest of us unable to actually see the inner workings of the finance of this this uh this foundation and details of where these donations went we've got a lot of questions that definitely need to be per pursued. Uh, but at the same time, uh, let's, you know, take a step back from trying to brand any, anyone associated, uh, with the foundation over the last 20 years as, as adhering to a certain political stripe or a certain agenda. It is one of the most, uh, diverse and politically engaging, uh, groups of people, uh, that, that I've ever come across. And they certainly don't agree on, on topics of, of intellectualism or, 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 or politics or, or whatever the, the, the case may be. It was a, it was a foundation designed for really bold dialogue and critical engagement. And it would be a big mistake to try to uh, deter the, the foundation away from those original goals. Well, the thing is, is for most of us, I guess, and I can probably speak for most Canadians, this wasn't even on our radar. I mean, you stop mm-hmm. 10 people on the street at Young and St. Clair in Toronto or downtown Hamilton and say, what's the Trudeau Foundation? They wouldn't know. So, yeah. you know, has it been under scrutiny in the past where the concerns about uh, the now we're talking about things like transparency, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I, I don't remember anybody even raising this issue with this foundation in the past. And, and now because of this one donation and, and like you say, it seems to fall on the on the, the shoulders of one individual here. I mean, somebody had to say, yeah, that's OK, let's do this. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. In the early days of it, uh, back in my era, it was. Uh, very much seen as that memorial to Pierre Trudeau, the, the, you know, the philosopher, the scholar, that, the, the, that, that, that character, not even, not even his, his political endeavors. Uh, that's, that's sort of the origin story of it. And then when, uh, during the Harper years, uh, I remember there was some, you know, critique from the conservatives who saw the, the name Trudeau and, and got a little bit, uh, uppity about it, but they established the Vanier scholarship sort of as a, 
you know, an alternative to it. So there's another, uh, another found another scholarship that was funded for the pretty much the same purpose, just under a different direction. So that was it. But I think right now there's, as you say, Bill, it's not something that everybody on the street hears about all the time. So they hear prime minister Trudeau, they hear Trudeau foundation, they hear China, they hear these things coming together. And it's like a, it's a misassociation of brands when in fact, the the foundation was purposely set up that it would not have the, the political connections to to those in office. So I think that that uh, since Justin Trudeau has been you know part of, of well has been prime minister, uh, the making that disassociation between the operations of the foundation and the operations of the PMO's office has been difficult. Uh, on the same token, when we look at the nature of this donation from China that was accepted, uh, it also ties in the University of Montreal, where an even a greater sum of money was contributed to uh, a faculty of law there to create a you know. A, some some sort of exchange and research program set up in that way. That's a huge donation. And as we've talked about before, Bill, the idea that that the government of China seeks out opportunities to donate funds to try to find foundations and universities uh, in countries that it wants to have influence in, that follows that script perfectly. So it really needs to come back to what in the world went on in 2016 when uh, the board, the CEO at the time there said, oh, this will be a good idea. Because right now, the, the foundation's in absolute crisis. Uh, and, and, uh, this, this is not, this is not the, the outcome that they desired. And with the whole board resigning, I mean, that just, that just leaves, uh, you know, Mr. Polivar and the conservatives to, to just have a heyday on this. Well, and, and that's problematic is because as, as you just posed, uh, uh, you know, universities right across this country have received substantial amounts of money from, from Chinese business people, quote unquote, uh, that yep. probably is funneled through the Chinese Communist Party. We know that. And, and, you know, the, the, the seed for this story, uh, I think it comes from another leaked CSIS document, by the way, about this phone call between this Chinese businessman and representatives of the Chinese government. And, and they've got, I guess, the tape of the phone call. So, I mean, there's substantive information here, uh, to, to, you know, substantiate exactly what these guys are saying and, and why this happened. But mm-hmm. if the stated purpose, as you've told us many times before, uh, of this Chinese interference is to undermine our, our institutions, uh, they've, they've done a pretty good job on this one. Success, right? In, in that way. Uh, and, and this is the thing, Bill. This will not be the, the only chapter in the story. I mean, right now, I think, uh, because of that name association between the prime minister and the foundation, it's the same name. So a lot of people are, are rendering as the same brand, even though it's very, you know, different operations altogether. There's going to be a lot more of this coming forward. Uh, every university in the country has got some connection in this way. We, we've seen the CSIS reports that have shown that uh, universities from coast to coast have had ties and connections to uh, to affiliations in Beijing that are government connected. Uh, we've seen the cases where intellectual property has been stolen out of the country uh, and has gone to to China in that way. We or we can also expect provincial governments and municipal governments to be under scrutiny as well. And these are conversations that are going to have to happen. But what we need to do, Bill, is that as we're pursuing this, we don't give up on our fundamentals as a country. To We don't destroy the institutions that got compromised. We rebuild them stronger and we invest in the people who are able to 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 
push forward the, the the proper agendas that we need to have, which are, you know, enshrining democracy, uh, pursuing new ideas, pursuing freedom of speech, and to protect those. So any sort of uh, association with inquiry and destruction in the same sentence needs to be really cautioned against. Uh, with the foundation, they've they've still got that uh, that government mandate to invest in Canadian youth to pursue that free thought, and I believe. Uh, I, I believe there will be a way to get it back up and running again. Uh, it's just right now it's, it's, it's quite bruised. Well, especially, yeah, not just because of the information that we got about the, the donations themselves, but it's the political theater surrounding it right now. And, and, you know, a pox on all their houses for doing that. But uh, that's uh, politics, I guess, in the 21st century. Uh, Robert, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending some time and giving us a perspective on this. Really appreciate it. Happy to help, Bill. Thanks so much. Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University, who, him, as he mentioned, uh, himself was a scholar for the Trudeau Foundation uh, way back 2003 until 2008. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We need more ammunition. We need more uh, weaponry. We need more military equipment. We discuss all the details. I can explain this publicly, but uh, Canada supply and support us in supplying many uh, military equipment and ammunition uh, together with other allies and our partners. That is the uh, Ukrainian prime minister uh, who was in uh, Toronto yesterday talking with our prime minister. Uh, he, uh, of course, is Denis Shmihal. And uh, let's face it, they were talking about more support for the Ukrainian effort against the Russians uh, and because of some of the concerns and some of the setbacks, frankly, the uh, military has uh, been stuck with because of uh, some of the things that the Russians have done in the last little while. So Canada says, yeah, we got your back. And uh, that's welcome news. But uh, some of the critics are like, once again asking, well, is it enough? And is it going to actually be of, of some good to, to what's going on right now? Because the Ukrainians, we're told, are in the process of uh, trying to mount a counteroffensive against some of the Russian incursions over the last little while. To uh, assess this for us, please to welcome back to the program Thomas Hughes. Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, thanks for joining us. Great to have you back again today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to speak to you. Let me like, ask the question, I guess, a lot of the people were saying, uh, you know, good news. I mean, Canada has has made a, a dedication of about $59 million assault rifles and machine guns uh, be sending over to Ukraine right now. Uh, some are saying, look at it, it not bad, but uh, we could be doing and should be doing more. What, what's your assessment on the announcement from yesterday? It's a, it's a difficult one to, to answer. Should we be doing more until we know what the outcome uh, looks like uh, in a few weeks' time, in a few months' time? So my... Uh, position would be that that uh, Canada. Um, I would I would like to see Canada doing more. I would like to see all of of Canada's allies and and uh, partners doing more to support Ukraine. The ability for them to to do so in uh, a short time period is perhaps a little bit more questionable. Uh, so I think this package of aid to Ukraine is very timely. Uh, is exactly what. Ukraine uh, requires at this point. I mean, a lot of the conversations that we've had and a lot of the headlines that we see are, are about sort of the, the big ticket items, if you like, the, the uh, uh, new tanks being sent to Ukraine, um, uh, high, high technology anti-aircraft systems and the like. Um, but this is the, the bread and butter. This is the equipment that is absolutely necessary for Ukraine to, to continue to fight. Uh, so 
Uh, I think this is, uh, once again, a, a great indication of Canadian commitment to Ukraine. Uh, it is going to be of huge value to Ukraine, uh, but I don't think we should see this as, as the um, decisive or final package of military aid uh, that will, that will uh, swing things completely in Ukraine's favour. I know that in the past when Canada has made contributions like this, uh, they've actually had to go and purchase them someplace else and then uh, mm-hmm. send them over to Ukraine. But and I understand this is a lot of this stuff's going to be made right here. There's a, a Colt Canada factory in Kitchener, Ontario, I guess, that's going to be producing a lot of these uh, munitions and arms. Uh, so that, that's, that's something noteworthy, I think. Uh, but as you've talked to us about in the past, uh, promising them is one thing, delivering them is something else. And it's not just Canada, but the United States is, is under the same uh, umbrella right now where they, they're, they're talking the talk, and, and I'm sure they're sincere about it, but getting that stuff over there seems to be somewhat of a problem. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm delighted you brought up the point about uh, Cold Canada. I think that's a really interesting nuance uh, to to this particular um, provision of, of armaments. Um, I don't think this is a, a necessarily a driving factor, but I think it is worth noting that um, the the funds that the Canadian government is spending on this um, are going to a Canadian company for uh, uh, at least to a certain extent, and and I think that um, that is uh, obviously going to be helpful for uh, for the Canadian economy. Um, in terms of actually providing that aid on, on the ground, I completely agree with you. It is it is always going to be a challenge. I mean, we had some indications yesterday as well that the United States would be sending some more um, heavy equipment, um, some Bradley armored fighting vehicles, uh, and potentially the Abrams tank as well. So. If that is the case, one would hope that they have a uh, a concrete plan to um, take those uh, equipment, uh, take that equipment across across the Atlantic. And I would hope, and I would frankly imagine that that Canada will be working closely with their American counterparts to make sure that that they're not um, doubling up resources on this and ensuring that they can um, they can both contribute in the in in their own way um, to the. Um, to the single task that they have, uh, and that task is, as you suggested, getting that equipment across to, to Europe. Um, it's not it's not easy. Uh, it's really not easy, especially with that large large material. Um, and the Atlantic, as we know, it, it, for want of a better expression, it's it's a big place. Um, so, hopefully, um, this announcement can be followed through quickly. But I think you're absolutely right to bring it up as a as a challenge. We shouldn't just see the announcement and the procurement of of weapons and ammunitions as having that immediate impact. There is another stage uh, that that has to occur here. Yeah, and maybe let's put you know embellish that just a little bit here because uh, mm-hmm. remember the announcement from a couple of weeks ago, and I know you were on the show talking about it at the time was Canada's commitment to uh, supply the advanced surface-to-air missile system. Yeah, uh, they were actually buying it from the U.S. and then you know sending it over to Ukraine. Yeah. It's not there yet, and uh, apparently they haven't even made arrangements for it over there right now. And and there's a certain I guess need for it even more so than usual mm-hmm. because uh, as you outlined us about a week or so ago uh the russian tactics seem to have changed right now and as as one military expert said he says their secret weapon is not nuclear weapons they're not doing that but it's air power uh which yeah. means the ukraine is saying we need this stuff yesterday absolutely uh, air power has been a, an absolutely fascinating component of this this conflict and uh, it's it's a, occurred on multiple levels. We've heard uh, a lot of conversation around the UAVs being used, the small quadcopter drones to um, uh, provide information, intelligence information, and and reconnaissance. Um, but what we're also seeing uh, in, uh, I would suggest, an increasing um, quantity is is the the Russian air force 
actively contributing to, to the conflict on the ground. And part of the challenge for the Russian Air, for, Air Force in the, in the past has been that Ukraine has built up its anti-aircraft uh, systems very, very effectively. Um, and Russian, the Russian Air Force, I think, has been quite reluctant to uh, engage because, uh, frankly, of con concerns about the quality of the, that Ukrainian air defense. As Russia has, has changed their approach uh, and the equipment that they're using, the, the ordnance, the bombs that they're able to drop, um, Ukraine's anti-aircraft systems are being stretched rather more thinly. And once that occurs, if, if Russia can have uh, air superiority if, or at least have a, a greater ability to, to leverage its air force in support of its, its ground operations, that makes life very much more uncomfortable uh, for the uh, Ukrainian army. So getting um, those new sets of equipment, new anti-aircraft systems across to Ukraine is going to be hugely important uh, for what we anticipate, uh, expect to be uh, a Ukrainian offensive in the in the coming months. Um, and I think it, I was really disappointed to, to, to um, hear the, the news that that, that um, Nazam system is not uh, in Ukraine already. I mean, it's it's one of those frustrating facts that we were all quite excited when the announcement was made, and we thought, okay, this is going to make a real difference to to Ukraine. But um, the fact that it hasn't got there yet is is disappointing. As you say, this is kind of beyond Canada's uh, abilities at this stage. It's out of their hands. They procured this piece of equipment from the United States and they sort of pledged the money, if you like, for that. They bought bought it, but they're reliant on other other organizations and companies to, to follow that through. So I wouldn't necessarily blame um, Canadian decision makers on this one, but it is really disappointing that it's not there yet. Well, yeah, there's just so many so many steps to follow. You know, have we even procured it from the states yet? I don't know. I mean, uh, Minister Anand was uh, was uh, <laughs> a little sketchy on details when there she was asked yeah. about that the other day. Uh, more to come on this, obviously, but uh, a, a fruitful visit anyway from the uh, Ukrainian Prime Minister yesterday. Uh, Thomas, as always, thank you for this. Appreciate our conversation today. No problem at all. Glad to speak to you. Glad that was useful. Take care, Thomas Hughes uh, uh, from the Canadian Defense and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A rather disturbing story. Uh, For-profit nursing homes in Canada's largest city, that being Toronto, of course, are vacating the sector rather than undertaking mandatory upgrades, uh, creating property sell-off that is actually hindered with the Ontario government's uh, plan uh, to add add 60,000 uh, upgraded beds by 2018. This is a, a troubling story. We seem to be going in the wrong direction here. We know all about the many of the problems that long-term care facilities uh, have been enduring. And of course, more importantly, the people who are there, the frail and elderly, uh, who we're supposed to be caring for right now. So why are these people doing this? Well, there's a rather complicated story, uh, which is not uh, with a happy ending, by the way. Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Laura Tamblin-Watts, who is the CEO of CanAge. Laura, thank you so much for uh, making some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Good morning. What is happening here? Uh, we've, we've always known, and, and we've talked about this many times, of course, over the last number of years, uh, there seems to be a decided difference in, in quality of care, et cetera, between for-profit facilities and, and, and publicly owned facilities. I guess that's, that's, that's a fact, I think, for most of us anyway. Why are these people abandoning us and simply saying, okay, we're, we're not in the business anymore when we, we need more beds? We don't need to be shutting facilities down. You know, long-term care is not really where companies that are providing seniors care make their dollars. They usually make it providing home care services or retirement homes. So long-term care 
while it's not a loss leader, is just frankly not as profitable. So we're seeing a lot of new requirements for upgrades and and certainly looking down the pipe at new national standards. And some of these companies are making the decision to either get out of the business in Ontario or alternatively to change from long-term care into retirement homes, which have a very much lighter requirements compared to long-term care. Uh, yeah, we get into phraseology like assisted living, et cetera. It's, it's not as oh. intensive. We, we understand that. Uh, but the concern here, though, of course, is we also know from a number of reports, and God knows there have been a number of them done over the last four or five years, uh, that some of these facilities are substandard. They tend, they're older facilities. Maybe they, they don't have the upgrades, uh, whether it's heating, cooling, et cetera. And, and they basically have been read the riot act and said, okay, you've got to upgrade. You've got to make these things uh, better for providing quality care here. And instead of doing that, they're simply saying, wait a second here, we can just shut this thing down, sell the land and, and make a, a lot of money out of this whole thing. If, you know, they're not necessarily switching off, as you say, into, into another ser- section of care. Uh, they're selling this right off. And you, you have to wonder just what the motivation is. Well, profit, I guess, is the obvious answer here. Well, in many cases, these for-profit long-term care chains or seniors care chains really, in some ways, are in the business of real estate. And very often, they're in areas that can be developed for other things. When we're looking at how we rate seniors care long-term care homes, we call them A, B, C, and D, A being the best and C and D being the ones that are the most in need of upgrades. These are the ones that would have the old-styled ward rooms well, before mm-hmm. COVID, now they're not allowed to do that for uh, infection prevention and control requirements, but would have shared bathrooms of upwards of 20 people for showering and things. And in many cases, not have the appropriate fire retardants or sprinkler systems, let alone cooling and heating that's individualized in people's homes. And if you look at the cost of the upgrades, if you look at what it's going to take to do it, a lot of places are saying, you know what? The, uh, the real estate's very worthwhile, and we could just sell the real estate rather than do the upgrades. So it's a, it's a bottom line situation as far as they're concerned. And, and, you know, I guess the takeaway from a lot of this right now is, let's face it, for-profit is, you know, they're, they're there, as you say, to, to try to make money. And they, they have a responsibility uh, to shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if they can maximize their profit, I guess they're going to do that. But I guess the question a lot of people are asking now is, the government can't, this is not illegal, the government can't say you can't do that. Uh, but the only answer we've got so far from the minister, uh, Minister Kalander's office, is, well, we're going to make sure that the, all of those uh, those residents are, are relocated someplace else uh, before they actually shut the building down. Well, that's not really solving the problem because uh, you can only do that so long. And my, my information yesterday, Laura, was uh, there are probably about 20 of these province-wide that are going to be shutting down. But I'm told that there's probably more coming now because they're going to look at this and say, yeah, we can do that, too. When we look at this idea of rehousing seniors who are there, I don't know what magic is going to go into that because we have already about 40,000 people on the waiting list. 
And then on top of that, brought in that terrible legislation, which may, folks may recall we called Bill 7, which says that a person who's in a hospital can be sent even against their will to a long-term care home upwards of 70 kilometers away if you're in southern Ontario, 150 kilometers away if you're in northern Ontario because of shortages. And somehow by closing all of these homes, there's going to be extra room somewhere. I can't imagine how the minister is able to say that with a straight face. And that's just the ones that we know are closing. So we need a better solution. We know that we do. 60% of the homes, though, the LTC in this province are, are for profit. I mean, there's, there's no way, I guess, the government could, well, I guess they could, but I mean, the, the, the cost would be insurmountable, I guess, to try to build as many facilities and have them all private, uh, or public, rather, as opposed to private. So, you know, they, they may be a necessary evil that there has to be some for profit in there. And I applaud the government for finally saying, okay, yeah, but you've got to meet these standards. Uh, because that wasn't happening for the longest time. But when they shut down like this, I mean, what is the solution? I mean, th- as you say, if more and more start to close, <laughs> there, there's, there isn't any spare beds right now, and it's only going to get worse. And we're aging yeah, as a population. And, on- and Ontario has not adopted the national standards yet. Although, to be fair, a lot of the national standards and what we have in our legislation are quite similar. But yeah. I think a lot of the people who are running these older homes are looking at the national standards which have been drafted, which are currently voluntary. And, of course, we all hope that they're going to be made mandatory and looking at it and doing a cost-benefit analysis and saying, you know, we can sell this and put, they can put up a condo or do something else. This is not a solution to long-term care. This is not a solution to seniors care. I mean, the best and most important thing we could do right now is what we've talked about before, Bill, which is invest heavily in home care. Keep yeah. people out of long-term care. Invest heavily in things like adult vaccinations, influenza, RSV, shingles. These are the types of things that make people sick and then they end up in acute care and then they don't do well and they end up in long-term care. So while we need more long-term care, that's no question. We have to heavily switch to make sure that we're dealing with preventive care and home care to at least stop this bleed. Well, and the frustration here is, is uh, as I mentioned just before you joined us here, you know, the government did make a commitment uh, for 60,000 new and upgraded beds by 2028. Uh, they're go- just like they made a commitment to build so many houses, and they're not going to be able to meet that commitment. And it looks like they're not going to be able to meet this one either. So I- I'm looking, I guess, at this stage right now, Laura, for some recalibration from the government, uh, a realistic mm-hmm. calibration as to how they're going to deal with this problem. And, and I'd like to think that's going to happen sooner than later. One of the things that they're doing, however, is just uh, making my head shake. They are creating some new long-term care homes, but they're not homes anyone would want to live in. There are a couple that they've created that are more than 600 beds. They're these giant warehouses, floors and floors and floors of people. And we know that that's not the solution to long-term care, but they're trying to keep their beds, I guess, promise, which they're very far away from. I think that's absolutely the case, but they're building these mega homes, which is exactly the opposite of what we need. We need small, integrated homes in the community that are not just warehousing people, but letting them live full lives. But no, this government is is doing everything but what they should. Uh, well, that's why they need advocates like you and your organization, and uh, we're going to keep talking about it on this program as well. Laura, thank you for this. Always appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Laura Tamblin-Watts, who is the CEO for CanAge. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.